In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Americans love to talk about how Americans hate to talk about money. That's how Joe Pinsker started his article in the Atlantic Magazine back in February of 2020. It's true, many people, a lot of people, don't like talking about money. Even more, I'm willing to bet, don't enjoy talking or hearing about hell. So today's gospel reading that Courtney just read is a bit of a doozy, I would say. Like Mrs. Hopewell, the mother in Flannery O'Connor's great short story, Good Country People, who only speaks in cliches and says to her depressive daughter, Holga, if you can't come pleasantly, I don't want you at all. Sometimes we all have trouble looking at and talking about the unpleasant things in life. But why is it that we don't like talking about money? Pinsker cites a survey in his essay that found that people are actually more comfortable talking with friends about marital troubles, mental health, addiction, race, sex, and politics than they are comfortable talking about money. What's interesting is that while for so many it's a terrible taboo to talk about income and wealth, we kind of constantly talk about money, just in an indirect sort of way, if you think about it. Our everyday conversations are filled with questions about what we buy, what we don't buy, what we do for a living, where we went to college, what neighborhood we live in and all sorts of other subjects that serve as proxies for how well we're doing in the financial game of life. Research shows that there is a bit of guilt associated with wealth. The wealthier a culture is, the more uncomfortable they are speaking about that wealth. The numbers show. But when we accidentally say the unsayable, when we name just how well off we actually are in comparison to others in the world, Gosh, well then, the words of Jesus that Courtney just read in the Gospel of Luke, well, those words about the rich man in purple enter the room, and we want to get out of that room as quickly as possible. Because we're all the rich man, I want to say first. Either because we do live in Charlottesville, and we or our communities do indeed have more resources than our friends in Haiti and Honduras and so many other places throughout the world. But I would also say that we're all the rich man, every single one of us, because we've all ignored the needs of someone before. Like the rich man ignores the needs of Lazarus. No matter where you are in the world, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether that fall happened yesterday, today, tomorrow, or perhaps all the way back in that famous garden, we are all the rich man. This passage is undoubtedly about money. It's about how we ought to care for and sacrifice for the people around us who are in need. But life isn't that straightforward because the human heart isn't that straightforward. This is why Jesus doesn't simply command us to love and support the Lazaruses of the world. We can't simply be told what to do after all and then go and do it. Jesus knows us. He knows us a lot better than we know ourselves. And so instead of offering an example of how we shouldn't act, Jesus in this parable speaks to our hearts 
And he moves our hearts by giving us the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show us how God acts. And more powerfully, how God did act upon the cross. Notice how the story isn't just about the rich man ignoring Lazarus and ending up in hell. It's not some sort of simple lesson for the rich. It's also not a simple message of hope for the poor. No, the story continues beyond the grave, with the rich man continuing to miss the point, thinking that Lazarus can still serve him in some way, and that he and his brothers can still end up on top, if they could just get some help making better choices by being visited by some sort of a ghost. If you've watched much TV at all over these past few weeks or weekends, I'm guessing that you've stumbled upon one of these new Genesis car commercials. And one of them, there's a father who's busily uh, talking on his cell phone. He's on a work call uh, somewhere around the kitchen table. And as he's talking on the phone, his adorable daughter is on the floor playing with some toys. And she asks her dad, who's talking on the phone distracted, she says, Dad, how big is the ocean? And then he looks at her with a twinkle in his eye and he lovingly and sacrificially puts his phone down and he ends his business call and they hop in his beautiful new Genesis GV80 SUV and they cruise straight to the beach. (laughs) And he asks her about school and he asks her about her life. And as their toes touch the sand and they slowly walk out into the water, The slogan of this new ad campaign pops up on the screen. Life is defined by the choices you make. Ouch. (laughs) Now, I was willing to ignore the fact that it appears in this commercial that they leave their house and they drive out of New York City and then somehow they end up on the California coast (laughs) looking at the redwood trees and then this beautiful California coastline. I was willing to ignore that, but I couldn't ignore the tidal wave of guilt and anxiety that I felt when I saw those words, life is defined by the choices you make. I've made some pretty bad choices in the last 35 years of my life. I'm guessing that you have too. In fact, just a few moments before I saw this commercial, my daughter walked up to me and she said, Daddy, will you read me this book? And I said, once I'm done watching this commercial. (laughs) We've all made some bad choices. And if my life is entirely defined by the choices that I make, then I doubt I'm going to end up being carried off to heaven in one of these sweet new Genesis SUVs. We hear today's gospel reading, and at first we might think that it's a message that's not all that different from this car commercial. Life is defined by the choices we make. We have to choose not to be the rich man, or not to be like the rich man. We have to choose to have faith like presumably Lazarus had. We have to choose to send or to ask that a ghostly messenger might be sent to our loved ones so that maybe they can avoid making the same bad choices that we've made. 
But thankfully, when it comes to the unconditional love of God, when it comes to the ways our God, whose property it is always to have mercy, when it comes to his ways, our lives are not defined by the choices we make, the choices we have made. Instead, our lives are defined, were defined, when the world was turned upside down and Jesus was crucified for us on a cross. In the context of this passage from the Gospel of Luke, in this world, the rich man is the one who is blessed by God. That's what the people of this world, all of the people around him, thought when they saw him. They thought that the good actors, the people who had made the right decisions, clearly this man is blessed by God, and clearly Lazarus, with the dogs licking his wounds, this man, not so much. It's basic karma. But in this passage from Luke, what we end up seeing is that while the world expects God's blessing and favor to fall upon the haves, not the have-nots, what we actually see is God flipping all of that on its head and God finding favor with Lazarus. Notice how Lazarus is given a name while the rich man isn't given a name at all. Lazarus, it turns out, isn't less than human, although he might feel like he is. He actually is a sort of a stand-in for all of humanity. He isn't subhuman. He is us. So I've said that we're all the rich man, but I also want to say that we're all also Lazarus. The rich man represents what we think matters, what we think matters, what the world thinks matters Well, Lazarus represents what matters to God, which is to say, us. Jesus says you might feel worthless or pitiful or poor, desperate for belonging and affirmation, for praise and for glory, for a better job, for a decent meal. Well, Lazarus was as desperate and poor and pitiful as they come. But that's not how I see him, God says. That's not how God looks at Lazarus or you or me. God places ultimate value and blessing on Lazarus, not because of the choices he made, but because God made him. Just as God made you and me. But even more important than that, because God has forgiven you and me. Because God has died for you and me. When our first daughter, Sarah Grace, was born about four years ago, Courtney and I realized that we hadn't read the Chronicles of Narnia since we were little kids and barely remembered any of those stories. And so I made the really bold choice, Uh, speaking of choices, I made the bold choice that when we got up in the middle of the night, I was going to wake up too uh, when Courtney fed Sarah Grace or we gave her a bottle and we were both going to be up and I was going to read the Chronicles of Narnia out loud. It was a very bold choice. Um, Funny thing is the quote I'm about to read you, um, it was... It's on page 82 of the first of these short books, and I found the bookmark from four years ago on page 95 of that book. So my bold choice only got me, but so far. But 
So sort of halfway through or towards the beginning of this story, many of you might remember the, the four siblings. Um, you've got Peter and Susan and Lucy and Edmund, and they're all in the woods at this point. And their, their world's been sort of turned upside down. They don't know where they are completely. They don't know what's going on. They're animals talking to them. They're kind of scared. And they've befriended this nice couple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they uh, are talking about, they, they hear that this, this guy Aslan might be on the move, and they're not exactly sure what is being talked about, but then they turn around, they realize that Edmund, their brother, has snuck off into the woods, into the snow, and that he's likely gone off to be with the White Witch. And so, because of the choice that their brother has made, because of the choices that they've made coming into this world, uh, not knowing up from down, they're really scared. They're scared for themselves, they're scared for Edmund, they're scared for the entire world inside and outside of Narnia. And so Lucy says this, oh, can no one help us, she wails out. Only Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, we must go and meet him, he's our only chance now. As I read those words, I assumed Courtney was fast asleep in the chair, but as soon as I read them, she whispered, gosh, Aslan really is God, isn't he? We might feel lost in the dark wood with the choices that we've made, but we're not alone. And more importantly, the one who is with us is the one who has made the greatest choice of all for us. Aslan is the only one who can help us now, and he already has. We don't need someone to tell us a motivating story or to come to us from the dead and help us to make better choices. We need someone to die for us. We need someone to forgive us. We need someone to love us despite us. Thankfully for you and me, that, that choice has already been made. It is finished. Christ has already said. So the next time you see a Lazarus on the side of the road, whether that's through your own windshield or maybe it's a reflection of yourself in your rearview mirror, know that you and Lazarus are the same. You are Lazarus and he is you. Know that the only choice you are defined by is the choice that Christ has already made for you. Know that God is love, that God loves you, and that we are only able to love because God first made the choice to love us to the point of death on a cross. Amen.